and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd and I'm here today with Nick. Hi. And Percy. Hello. Today we're celebrating the end of our first season and we'll be reflecting a little on the games and commentary episodes we've done, the things we've learned, and answering some questions from our listeners. Um, So to kick it off, let's talk our top actual play moment of the season. Percy, you want to Yeah. it up? Uh, I think my favorite moment throwing it all the way back to our first game is uh how much the D cast hated the mouse <laughs> um <laughs> that i tried so hard to make helpful and lovable again um, fuck that mouse <laughs> i i really i was trying really hard and it just you know sometimes things just don't work out so that moment of hubris for me personally um i also love squick with my whole heart um and squick's rallying call to the workers <laughs> <laughs> um, in our paranoia game uh nick yeah i um this is this is a little bit of a cheat because it's not exactly a moment but i loved the emergence of eggs as a central motif in irremediably home um it was just one of those things that i think could not really have been uh pre- you know i would never have guessed was going to happen when we were putting the game together and i was just so delighted by the way it happened and really by that entire arc Absolutely. Um, For me, I honestly think it's when Ben and Romana, who did not know each other before playing this game and didn't know each other very well when this happened, um, when they just started keening um, with each other uh, in in the worship of friend computer. um, And it just got buck wild in a way (laughs) I was unprepared for. Um, (laughs) And it's been very exciting to like watch both of them. Yes. And that hard um, in games that we've played since. Amazing. What about a a moment of uh, a top commentary discussion that we've had from this season? If there are people finding the podcast like between seasons, what are some good commentary episodes for them to pop into? Uh, For me, I think I really loved our exploration of the relationship between tabletop safety tools and intimacy choreography. And that episode that we did with Ella um, Mm -hmm. to talk about the Apocalypse World Session Zero. Such a gem. Such Such a gem. gem. They're the best. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'll say sw- swinging hard the opposite direction. <laughs> I'll say, uh, I know I, I, in all seriousness, I loved the episode that we recorded recently about character backstory um, only because I think that the three of us actually have kind of very different uh, ideas and takes on it. Um, and I love that. I, I love hearing a variety of perspectives on something like that. So I enjoyed that. And it was also fun kind of play fighting with each other. <laughs> I think that was real fighting Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, um, the, the player as performer and audience episode, um, was really where I did the most, uh, like theory digging um, of the episodes that we've released, which was really exciting. Like it was exciting to dive into that in a way that I haven't in a while um, of like, what do people feel about how the place of the performer is during different times? And like, how does that overlap with theater and how does that overlap with tabletops? Um, so that was a really exciting episode to do. And I think for me it was like our first episode that was really about like what the podcast is about. Um mm where 
because uh, to me, the the actual plays that we do are like case studies um, and they're very fun and very good and very delightful to listen to. Um, but to me, the episode nine where we really like sunk into let's talk about how these things intersect was very exciting. Amazing. Are there any for either of you, Percy, Todd, do either of you have any new kind of takeaways or thoughts about the ways that tabletop games and theater intersect? This episode is not going to release on our one year anniversary, but the three of us have certainly been working on this for well over a year now. Um, So any new thoughts that have come to mind since we started the project? I think for me, um, it's challenged a lot of the ways that I think about the way that we structure theater production and the ways that we uh, make art together, even outside of it. Because we we talked, we had a whole episode about devising um, and how that sort of resonated with the Session Zero sort of collaborative world building of Apocalypse World. But I really do think that my approach to any kind of art making, devising or otherwise has really been opened up to understanding like what magical things can happen when everybody is playing on an on an even field and and everybody's input is equally weighed and just what happens when you're like spitballing together and building off of each other and able to do all of this work together in the same place so just yeah like my biggest takeaway is in both tabletop and in theater uh like invest the time in spending time as a as a creative group who is producing something like spend time together as a cast and like work on things together and let things be really really collaborative because it's time well spent both in like bonding everybody together and also like your art will be so much better for it Mm -hmm. i feel like i've been doing a lot of thinking about um like meaningful choice in immersive theater Mm -hmm. um this is something that's always been kind of in my mind because I feel like a lot of times we say immersive when we mean you don't have chairs. Um, (laughs) And like the, the theater that is sometimes called immersive is theater that you walk around and you see people do things. And I think um, especially given all of the the like tabletop theory um, that I've been reading this past year and about like how to best give players like real choices to make that have weight um, that you can play off of is even more important when we're trying to do immersive work, which I think is like more akin to tabletop improv than it is to what we see in immersive shows often and i'm interested in how we can make more like gamified um immersive theater with choice mm-hmm. and you know this this is a slight tangent but i also love this topic so i'll just say i think the the tricky thing about it is that the the hidden aspect of meaningful choice is that you have to know it's a meaningful choice and have some sense of the stakes, mm-hmm. which means that for most immersive shows, you know, the path that you choose through the show for many shows can't really be a a meaningful choice, because even though it will absolutely determine your experience, if you have no sense of like what those choices mean when you're making them. Mm-hmm. It's not going to feel, you know, you're not going to feel consequences. You're just going to pick arbitrarily and then feel either delighted or kind of screwed over. 
um yeah i love that topic anyway uh, do you have I, a takeaway nick i was yes i was originally going to say i one thing I love about this project is that for the past year, I have really felt my mind expand in terms of form, particularly when it comes to what a game can be, you know, reading reading games for the podcast, especially some of the more unusual <laughs> fringy fringy games like Avery Alder's Variations on Your Body, which is a collection that I love and Absolutely, like two years ago, I would have looked at and been like, I don't get how this is a game for most of them, I I think has given me a new appreciation both for what games are, but also has made me excited to try to find theater artists who are pushing the form in similar ways Mm. and to find those artists who are kind of like on the on the very margins of creating things that maybe maybe don't even look like theater at first, but still claiming it as such. I mean, I know that we have both seen recently Theater A Love Story, which spends a lot of time discussing how it is a play that does not look or operate like a play in any traditional way for most of it, um, which I found intriguing. Yeah. During the pandemic, I've been sort of forced to like expand my understanding of what theater is, because I think as a as an industry we've had so many arguments about like what counts as film and what counts as theater and what is what makes a theatrical event is it liveness is it audience is it all of these things and like ultimately and maybe it's because i'm just like exhausted of having these arguments all the time as an industry but i i kind of just feel like it's it doesn't matter what you call it as long as you would like as long as you enjoy doing it and you're and you're making it and the experience of making it is valuable so i feel like my yeah, similarly, like I've just like worn away at the like strict definitions that I used to hold for for what certain things are. Yeah, um, I I think I think categorizing is kind of a sucker's game, um, but it is also true. I'll say a disappointing part of doing this in the pandemic is that I want to find that theater work and also just this is purely as a like personal thing. Most of the work that's happening, not all, but much of the work that's happening online doesn't really grab me. I think that's just a like personal aesthetic thing. I don't relate to things as well through the screen. So I'm looking forward to being able to find this weird fringy stuff when I can, when the people who want to make that can make things that gather people in physical proximity again. Mm-hmm. I have another takeaway that's or just like personal like thing in the vein of like expanding definitions and whatnot, I feel like my understanding of dramaturgy has expanded in a lot of ways. Um, Cause for a really, really long time, like I didn't think of myself as like a performer. And while this is like perhaps an atypical kind of performance um, being in a game that was being recorded for other people to listen to was like a pretty new ish experience for me, or at least like an experience I've had in a really long time. And that was like, whoa, (laughs) Um, (laughs) not only am I not just a dramaturg, like the, again, like the barriers between things uh, or the, the divisions between like job titles or job responsibilities or whatever in theater, I feel like could do with a little bit of wearing away in terms of like, I feel like all of the casts of all of our actual plays this season were all contributing to like a shared dramaturgy of what we were doing. Because I feel like that's what tabletop games are. If you're like 
like it's it's building a shared dramaturgy and telling a story together. So yeah, that's been that's been nice, and it's like expanded my understanding of my practice as a dramaturg. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say my my dramaturgy professor, her uh, her feeling, Dr. Jessica Hester, was that like everyone should be a dramaturg, like a designer should be a dramaturg and they should be doing historical research on like the period that they're setting their piece in. So they know what they are playing with and against and an actor should be a dramaturg because they should understand the context of the work that they're doing. Um, and that it shouldn't just be the burden of one person. There's like one person who does the extra research, but like all of us together should be bringing in, um, different bits of information that can help fuel and form our collective understanding of what a piece can or cannot be. Similarly, um, Jocelyn Clark, who is a dramaturg that works with Arena Stage, um, frequently told me, like, anybody can do the work of dramaturgy. A dramaturg is just a person who, like, mostly that like who the work that they're doing in a room is mostly the work of dramaturgy but like you can tell anybody in a rehearsal like watch this run through and see how this character's arc works like focus on that specifically or look for moments where x happens sort of thing like anybody can do that work if you tell them what to look for um that's in line too with like a broader conversation that's happening in the field of dramaturgy that i've seen sort of developing in terms of like troubling that notion of like expertise or like being the smartest mm-hmm. person in a room because i don't think any of the three of us believe that that's like what a dramaturg should be no no <laughs> no bad gross <laughs> um i think that's a great place uh, to segue over to our mailbag questions we have a number of questions mostly from people who've lived with me in the past um lovely humans all uh and our first question comes from uh, Ben Ferber, uh, who you'll know as Friend Computer um, and the GM of our Paranoia campaign. Um, and he asks, what is Dungeons and Dragons? With five question marks. With five question marks. That is important. <sighs> it's, a, it's a real tough one, uh, to be honest. I mean, we've known for a while that Dungeons and Dragons is a manual for satanic rituals um meant to both spill the blood of the innocent and summon sex demons uh into your air, air ducts or something i'm butchering <laughs> it's a steam the tunnel steam tunnels thank you thank you there we go summon sex demons into your steam tunnels um that sounds like a euphemism <laughs> so, so there you go ben um I've always thought of Dungeons and Dragons as like a rather large sentient fish, um, a la perhaps uh, the, uh, oh, geez, what was it? The Leviathan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was like a like a like a steamed bun um, variety mm-hmm. um, filled mm-hmm. with like a like a like a mushroom, very like umami filling. Um, yeah, with a little bit, a little bit of spice. I can get into that. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, Becca asks. <laughs> Becca asks, "What has been most surprising about making Dungeons and Drama Nerds season one?" I'll 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 answer that for myself. Um, I I honestly think one of the things I've been surprised by was how um, I'm going to qualify it, but how easy it was. By which I mean it was, in fact, a lot of work. Um, 
But I was so delighted that we were able to find people um, who were excited about doing this work um, so quickly and how quickly we were able to like generate ideas and um, work and exciting ideas between between us and our casts and our GMs. Um, and I'm super stoked to be starting work on season two. Yeah, I think I think for me, the most surprising thing has been and like I can mostly speak to the game that I that I played in, but I got the sense that this was similar for for other folks as well. But like we were a bunch of people who didn't really know each other particularly well within each cast. Like it was like a lot of people are like individually friends with one or two of us. Um, but the cast as a whole are not like people who are super familiar, but I feel like they all gelled together really quickly. Um, and we sort of like formed these little communities that are just like really, really nice and lovely. Um, and like, I don't want to flex, but I guess the point of this episode is like to flex a little bit. Like I, I don't know it was i it was surprising to me that that those casts really like found found these really lovely friendships with each other but also i feel like part of that is because like i'm proud of us for being really intentional about setting up an environment in which everybody felt like safe and able to be vulnerable with each other and able to really like invest fully in the work that we were doing um and that was really cool yeah i mean echoing that i feel like it was very as someone who has only played D with like very close friends um it was exciting to be able to get to like weird character moments um with people who didn't know each other very well um in all of the games so our next question comes from johnny from portland um he asks out of all the systems you've played what's the best for beginners anybody want to take a crack at that one um, I'm going to take this opportunity to drop a hot take, which is that I think a lot of people I'm going to answer like for me out of games that I personally have played rather than games we played on the podcast. Like, I think a lot of people say like, oh, play Honey Heist or Crash Pandas if you if you're a beginner. And I think that's absolutely not what you should do, <laughs> um, because I unless you're a beginner who happens to like be super comfortable doing like improvisational role play and like kind of being extremely self-guided because the game is not supporting you very much in terms of like the work that you're doing. Um, so I would, I would say a game probably like one of the more, like I, I would say as much as I hate to say it, like a game that is on the more popular end, because I feel like more people on the internet talk about it and you can find more resources about how to play it. Um, like in, like an apocalypse world or, a quest or something like that, like a game that has a lot of resources available, particularly if you're like me and a big research nerd and you love to just like read and look at all of the things. Or the other would be like, find a game that is about us. Like there are TTRPGs for every possible niche, like interest. Like if you're really into, into pirates, you could play uh bro. Is it gate doc or whatever? Like you could, <laughs> <laughs> Well, this you certainly is, can. There, you might, there might be other pirate <laughs> tabletop games out there too. There are other ones. That's the one that I read recently. Is why it's on my mind. Although, funny story. Um, my friend Charlie, who uh, spoiler, you'll meet on the podcast next season, um, sent me that game with the name of it in the email subject apropos of nothing. So I thought he was just sending me an email that was like asking me that question. Um. Anyway, um. Like if you. 
if you have a really like specific thing that you're really into um or like if you are into witchcraft like there are lots of games that use tarot cards as a mechanic or things like like i think no matter how mechanics heavy or mechanic like you'll if you find games that are like tapping into interests that you have that is always a really really good place to start um because you'll have that like investment in it like if you're really into tarot you will love games that use tarot cards as their uh means of advancing the story so that's my answer is find something uh that you're really really interested in or a game that has a lot of resources available or like actual plays available um or play bros at get a dog yeah i'll second i'll second one of your suggestions percy which is um I would say quest if if you if you have if you have a group of beginners who are very interested in like what they perceive as D&D and have only like a distance you know have not played before have not like really done any research on it and just know like vaguely fantasy role playing thing I think quest offers you like some customization and will like is like a simple system that is pretty easy for people to pick up and play with um if your group is a little more genre flexible I would say do a little bit of digging and find a PBTA game that fits the genre you're looking at because I think I mean the only PBTA game I've really played is masks but I think they usually hit a good sweet spot of like again some customization they usually have like a little ritual that walks you through character creation which i think is helpful for new players um and they usually do a pretty good job of like getting the feel of the genre that you're interested in yeah i i have similar vibes i think that masks is a really excellent game that i desperately want to play um i've done so much reading about it but it it sets like if you're if you're cool with your genre being teenage superheroes, um, which I very much am. But if you want something that's a little more like classically fantasy, I feel like Mouse Ritter is a nice like rules light version of Dungeons and Dragons, which I feel to people who aren't like computer RPG players or just like gamers in general, it feels like so many forms and so much information and it takes so long to get to a place where your character can do cool stuff. And in Mouse Ritter, you are a tiny mouse. Um, You have a weapon or you don't. It is probably like a a sewing needle. Um, And it is your job to try to like fairy goods and fight cats um and it's it's adorable but also is not as weighty um as dungeons and dragons is and you can make a character in like two or three minutes um without having to flip to five different chapters of a 200 page source book um and i think in that way it's much more accessible and easy to play and see like oh is this the kind of game that i want to play or do I want to play something that's very different, but still a role-playing game? Mm-hmm. I also feel like the answer that I have for everything, which is like, ask your group if they want, because some people want a game that's like super crunchy and full of rules to learn and lots of stuff to dig into. Um, and some people don't, and some people really, really want to role-play and some people don't. So yeah, I also feel like just a shout out an actual game. That's not kind of a joke. Um, I would say cyberpunk. Um, if you're interested in a crunchier system, 
cyberpunk is a good place to start if you like science fiction because the other like very very popular science fiction offerings are notoriously like nightmarish to learn how to play (laughs) i mean i will say cyberpunk red came out and we have the book and that book is bizarre yeah, I was like, going to say, I don't think cyberpunk is approachable, per se. I'm well, very excited to play it with my roommates. Yeah, and like also, it, it is a weird book. It looks fun, but it's not, like, easy to pick up. I'm just speaking as the kind of person that, like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something. So for people who are also um, extremely ambitious um, (laughs) or have really strong Virgo energy, which is not a thing I personally have, one of those two things. Anyway, uh, our next question. Uh, Our next question comes from Becca also, um, and it is, how have your perspective shifted on TTRPGs throughout season one? I think I've said this earlier, so I'll just summarize quickly. My understanding of what a TTRPG is has really expanded in ways that I'm excited about. Yeah, prior to recording season one, I had only like loosely read the games that we were going to be playing. Um, and outside of that, had only played Dungeons and Dragons. And I think um Apocalypse World and Masks um and just PBTA games in general that focus I mean, in in so many ways, Apocalypse World feels like a pushback against the the foreseen like the perceived failings of dungeons and dragons um which is like the character stuff doesn't always work you can put it on there but in many ways it is a combat simulator uh trying to make meaningful choice where like dice rolls always move you forward there is no stagnation um that you might have in like a miss Uh, and so that has been very exciting in thinking about like how do we take systems and build them better is something that's been very exciting for me about ttrpgs um, and how i've come to understand very different ones this year uh because it's not just like what flavor of rolling a d20 do you want should there be cowboys or <laughs> laser swords and instead it's like oh like do you care about meaningful relationships with your party members and the world do you care about language um do you care about how uh the choices you make uh, you know, have have good or bad influences on the world and what does that do for you, um, which is really exciting. I love that. I think similarly for, for me, it's been an expansion of like what a game is and also an expansion in like the ways that I'm interested in like, like games have become the way that I frame a lot of things in my in my mind and a lot of like Along with expanding the definition of game, I've also become interested in a lot more. Uh, I'm starting an, uh, a letter writing RPG with a friend of mine where we're going to send letters back and forth as um, a pair of queer lovers in history, um, which is an extremely gay activity. Um, but like, I, that's yeah, that's the kind of thing I wouldn't be interested in, perhaps or as interested in, perhaps like I the TTRPG frame just like fits so many more things than I than I thought it would. Um, to the point where I'm also like sneaking writing a TTRPG into my final for one of my graduate seminars this semester, which is wild. Um, so yeah. Um, our next question comes from Shannon, uh, and she asks, "What's a time your dice betrayed you?" Okay, I want to get this off my chest. Um, 
juice in the end of paranoia and this is the weirdest sort of a dice betrayal i really wanted to use my mutant power which just makes shit get weird um it was very cool i was very excited to use it but to do it I wanted to like make something explode. And so I had rigged this wind cannon to do. I had done all of these ridiculous things with the assumption that they would not work. And then I would key in my mutant power. But the betrayal of my dice is they were like, no, that worked pretty okay. And I was like, oh, I guess I won't juice it then. And then like something else happened. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll. These are okay. I was expecting very terrible roles such that I could do something dumb and hilarious. And Um, I was robbed. Once again, Todd is too good. (laughs) (laughs) My dice, they're too good. I, yeah, I can tell this story. I'm trying to remember who (laughs) listens to the podcast. Um, I was running a, a game and I had this plan in my brain as DMs shouldn't ever do. Um, where I was like, I had this like assassin rogue NPC who was hiding in a room um, and they were going to like come out of hiding and use their assassinate power to like kill one of the parts. Like it was going to be amazing. Um, it was going to be really cool and sneaky and they were fucking invisible also. So like all of the odds were in my favor. So I go to roll my stealth check with advantage and I get two natural ones. <laughs> oh. Which is I and and it didn't work. Um, and they uh, they killed my cool rogue, um, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, this isn't my. T- this technically wasn't my dice, but I think it's a time that like dice generally and probability betrayed me. Um, in the first edition Pathfinder game I was running several years ago, there was a ghost wizard who my party confronted, and I was like. And and the party's monk um, was taunting the ghost wizard. And I was like, well, I'll teach him a lesson. Um, and I had the wizard cast Phantasmal Killer on him. For those who aren't familiar with Phantasmal Killer, it's known in First Edition Pathfinder for being a spell that isn't nearly as exciting as it seems because to... I don't remember the exact mechanics, but basically the target gets to make two separate saving throws. And if they pass the first one, nothing happens at all. And if they pass the second one, they take a little bit of damage. And if only if they fail both, do they die? But like most the odds of people failing both are very poor. Well, (laughs) I cast Phantasmal Killer at my monk who had the best saves in the party and he rolled like a two I was like, well, that's okay. I have another saving throw. And then he rolled a different die for the second one and got a three. And that's how I killed the monk. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. (laughs) Our next question comes from Johnny. Uh, What are some good acting tools you can bring to the table to help encourage role playing and improv? I'll say something that was said to me recently be loud and wrong (laughs) could you elaborate (laughs) no Um, no i'll try i'm just Um, gonna shout misinformation whenever my party (laughs) enters a tavern no no what it actually is 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 an invocation to take risks 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. like if you think of an exciting thing to do um, dramatically, strategically, whatever, like it's better to take a swing and a miss than to, uh, you know, constantly be like monitoring yourself and checking yourself and not doing that because at the end of the day, it's a game. So like, do you, what's the worst that happens? <laughs> it's true. I think my biggest tip, the acting tool I would, I would recommend in playing is active listening. Um, cause you're at a table with like five or six other people. So chances are extremely good that like anything, anything that you need to play off of is already being given to you. And it's just about like really absorbing and taking in what everybody else at the table is offering. Um, and just bouncing off of that and staying really kind of reactive and, and in the moment. Um, and I, it can be really easy to sort of drift off, but it's nice to sort of anchor in like, uh, in, in what other people are providing and it makes it more fun for everybody because like everybody loves to feel like, oh, like I offer like I said something and like everyone is playing off of it. Like there's a really good feeling. It's nice to kind of bounce that good feeling around the table. I feel like I... In the games that I've run, the the most exciting things have always been moments when the players interacted with each other. Um, they are rare. Sometimes, sometimes someone throwing a great crit at a at a pivotal moment is wonderful, and there's like cheers and hurrahs and uproar at the table. But the moments where someone is willing to really engage with another character on their level and not just to achieve like this is the next strategic beat or thing that we need to do, but to really like engage with each other are the moments where I think people have the most fun. So like play with your other players. Don't just play with the DM. Yeah, there's a in the game that I'm playing in right now, um, my character has like a budding friendship like he's like a loud and often wrong himbo guy um and he has this budding relationship with this like very brash and like confident and sneaky yuanti um and like they're an extremely unlikely pair and it's extremely wholesome <laughs> their relationship that they're building um and it really like it makes the game so much more fun um to to have that dynamic um so yeah Becca also asked us, uh, what types of theater are you excited to make or produce or see, or all three, because of your work on Dungeons and Drama Nerds? I mean, in many ways, this is the sort of work that I already liked making, but like, put ghosts in your goddamn plays, put some sword fights in there, have a good time. Um, why isn't there more magic on stage? We, we do unbelievable things all the time. Well, and I just think that jo- th- this is something that came up at a talk back um, for a play that we're developing at Portland Stage called The Last Ship to Proxima Centauri. Um, and it, it's set in a spaceship and it's a sci fi play, but it's like a sci fi play about colonialism and America's uh, legacy and like borders. Um, and it's seen through the lens of like a spaceship 2000 years from now. Um, and I I just. Uh, like even more so um, given the year that we've all had, but also the stories that we've gotten to tell on this podcast. Like, I think 
people who see genre as something other than or particularly something less than um, realism and as as like a style of theater that is incapable of telling moving, impactful human stories just sounds silly to me. Um, and I don't I just don't see the point. And I think everyone should be doing plays that like get a little weird because that's what we can do in the theater that I think is great is we're liars. So like, let's lie to each other and tell interesting lies. I will bring up something Todd said before that I've been very excited about. I just uh, watched slash played Ayogawa's um, Ludic Proxy Fukushima. Uh, and I am, was really excited by that because it's a theater piece that is also a game. Um, and I am curious to see more pieces like that and to explore, you know, what what does it mean for a theater piece to be immersive? What does it mean for a theater piece to be interactive and where the collisions between those two qualities are and lead us? And what does what does theater actually look like in the 21st century? Because we're still producing theater that mostly feels like it was written in the 1950s. And sometimes with updated m music. <laughs> it's really the Woo. only thing sometimes. Um, I think for, well, first of all, our friends at 4615 Theater are doing a video game play called Dark City. Um, so check that out if that is something that you're interested in. I'm very excited to play it. Um, it's going to be very cool. I think for me, what Dungeons and Drama Nerds has made me really, really excited to do more of is more devising because I just really find that I thrive on the energy of like collaborative world building. And uh, I just, yeah, I got really excited to just work on more things that are cool and weird with my friends, <laughs> um, but also like, yeah, really like do theater that has to be built together from a group because you don't have a script that you're working from. Uh, so that's my biggest thing that I got excited about working on. Yeah. Um, we got another one from Johnny. How do you balance uh, bending the rules for role playing while still being a consistent DM? I think this is something that I kind of struggle with personally. Um, like when do you land, like stick the landing of a cool story beat? And when uh, does like player agency, um, mess with that and not in the like oh, my players aren't doing what I want them to do but like ooh, I want to leave you on a cliffhanger what if this person shows up and monologues at you a little bit um and blah 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 and then disappears or whatever um and I was listening to um I think it's called the dm's guide it's a podcast um and this guy was talking about making the things that your players want to do the things that they can do and also removing things that you don't want to do from their choice in a way that makes sense. And one of the ways that he looked at this was looking at mass effect. Um, and he talks about like the first time you really see the villain in mass effect, whose name I don't remember. Um, he appears on a hologram in this like court case like you're trying to harangue him for crimes that he like did against you and he only appears on Holovid because if you were playing the game and you have player choice, you would want to take him out. He's an evil guy. He tried to blow up your ship. He tried to blow up your friends. And if he showed up in front of you, you would try to kill him. And if you had agency, you would do that. 
um, and the game doesn't want you to yet because you're supposed to deal with that villain later. And so by removing the choice to attack him physically, you then have to like act, the players have to act in a very different way. And I think I am trying to find the proper ways to like limit player choice in order to tell compelling stories while also having very meaningful choice that allows them to change how the narrative is going. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. No, I, I think it does. I've been I've been struggling with that a little bit too lately, and I think it does depend. I think part of it is picking your system and knowing it well. And I mean that on the group level, not just for the GM, because I think the thing is, you know, ideally you don't have to bend the rules because you all want to play the game that you're playing. Mm -hmm. If that makes, you know what I mean? Like in an, in a perfect world. And of course this is rarely the case and that's why house rules come in and GMs like bending the rules come into play. But in perfect world, everybody is enthused about playing the particular game that you're playing so the rules just support the story you want to tell rather than getting in the way um i will say for me lately so i'm playing second edition pathfinder right now which is one of those d20 games where you have to like where the players sort of have to be in a slightly reactive stance because the game is complicated enough that's hard to improvise like it's hard to purely improvise. It's hard to go into a session as a GM with actually nothing prepared. You would have to be very good at like searching the SRD to find <laughs> challenges on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been trying to reduce the amount that I have prepped and get a really get to know my group so that I can judge, you know, how much are they likely to try to do in a session? And then I can only prepare the things that I think I will actually need for the session. And that can give me some sense of whether I need to invent a rule or bend a rule ahead of time. Yeah, I think I the thing, the rule that I have the most trouble with in terms of bending, like I have a... I have a really hard time as a DM not not metagaming in terms of deciding what is happening when the party is not there, like what, how the world is turning. If the party chooses not to interact with certain things, like I have a hard time. I always second guess like, Oh, am I doing this because it's like dramatically interesting? Um, or because it's the thing that would happen. Like, is it both? Or am I just like doing things that I think are fun? Um, but I think part of that second guessing also comes from just the way that culturally we talk about like the role of the DM um, which I'm very happy that we're sort of interrogating in the podcast because, yeah, I feel like there's this like antagonism that is baked into how we talk about that role that I am just going to abandon um, and feel and feel good about and feel good about my choices. I'm feeling particularly guilt about this recently because in my home game, they the party made some like probably poor decisions and they have uh, are, are facing a lot of consequences for it. Um, like, a, yeah, many, many. Uh, chickens came home to roost in one session consequences um, for my actions unthinkable um they were really shocked pikachu about it too which is extremely <laughs> funny to me <laughs> um oh, geez. yeah like they killed a bunch of guards and acolytes of this church that they're very uh that they're, that they're trying to bring down because the church is evil 
Um, not all churches, but this specific church. Well, um, well we won't get it. That's a different podcast. Um, and then they were like, oh, we left no survivors. It'll be fine. But like speak with dead as a spell that exists. And like other people were on the like, it's a <laughs> what did you expect? Um, so, yeah, I I have I have trouble with like metagaming and like how much metagaming is actually fine. Um because ultimately also if we're trying to tell an interesting story, you should probably choose to do the like dramatically interesting thing as long as there is a legitimate justification for it mm-hmm. in the story. We have two more questions. Uh, one comes from Shannon, who asks, what's a game mechanic you wish you could pick up from one game and transplant into another? I think uh, definitely. I just had a conversation about this history with some folks, actually. I think I would if I had to choose one only one mechanic it would be applying the uh mixed success mechanic of powered by the apocalypse games to like any other game but like particularly d20 games um because there are some d20 games where they'll be like oh if you fail by five or more this happens or oh if you succeed by five or more this happens sort of thing but i feel like rather than hard dcs like ranges are a lot more flexible and a lot more dramatically interesting so that would be my answer. That is almost exactly the thing I was going to say. I would just tweak it slightly to say not only the mixed success, but the I really love the the way that the whole engine for Powered by the Apocalypse is the players actions. And so that like, you know, in at least masks, again, the only one I've played directly, you know, I as the GM really only make a move when the players fail a role. And I like mm-hmm. that, like the story advances by what the players do succeed or fail, but it doesn't devolve into this like just mechanical. Okay. You take a turn. You take a turn. You take a turn. I take a turn. You take a turn. You take like, I'll, it keeps the kind of engagement varied, I think, which I like. Mm-hmm. I, I just love the group um, character creation in masks. And I think it's so, cool and magical for building bonds between a party. Um, I think we have talked before about how a lot of D20 systems are like you build your character on your own because you're filling out your tax forms and then you come into session one or session zero, whichever, and you just like present a fully fleshed out character. And what I love is like, how can you work with and against this other character concept? How can you um, accentuate them or foil them? How can you do those things that support and uplift? Who do you look up to? And like having that already made together uh, to me is so exciting. That gave me an idea for a tabletop game where you have to literally do a PowerPoint presentation on your uh, character at the beginning, which would be probably a, a, terribly terrible terrible game um this is why i'm not a game designer i was gonna say i don't know if i would play that game (laughs) um i love powerpoints what can i say that's not true actually (laughs) just lying percy just lying over here you you were the one who said we're all a bunch of liars telling lies together in (laughs) the theater life is our podcast also in our podcast podcast. (laughs) um Anyway, our last question comes from Johnny, and it is, how do you translate story beats into the structure of an evolving cooperative narrative? Okay, this is my hot take one. Uh, I actually wonder, again, as I as my 
understanding of tabletop role-playing games has expanded there's a part of me that's like should you though like is that actually do we have to be married to this aristotelian plot is the highest point of everything ethos that is you know that's pervaded our theater and our understanding of narrative for the past you know 2500 years or you know like sometimes yes you land those story beats in an even in an ongoing narrative campaign like you land those story beats and it's amazing but also you know sometimes you have a shopping session and you know a session where like the it's between adventures and the players are just like i'm gonna bop around town and like make out with the barmaid or buy a house or whatever you know like buy equipment um and those can be really lovely too and they can be moments of um community and of uh interaction and of joy that aren't driven by story beats and i think the kind of conventional wisdom of you have to figure out a way to like get the party on this narrative can actually obscure those moments or or can push you to like roll past them because it's like oh if i don't get like a cliffhanger or a turn or something in here in this like game session then uh like then it will be disappointing it's like well no actually like probably in every group i've played with like people are enjoying being around each other and hanging out and that's kind of a fundamental thing so you don't you don't have to stress out about story beats that much Mm. i think i don't i just don't think you do to sort of build off of that i feel like what I would what I would say is we should change our understanding of like the story of a TTRPG, because I feel like assuming that you're playing a game that is about like a party of characters doing things in a world, because there are many games that aren't that and that like encounter that separately. Um, but I feel like rather than saying like, here's a story that this group is like navigating through or like experiencing, think of it as like the story is the story of the party in the world. And it is actively being written as we go. So I think rather than saying like, yeah, like here are the beats of what's going to happen, framing it as, yeah, maybe I know what's going on in the broader world and what like plot hooks and and things they might encounter or what might happen. Thinking of it instead as like we're telling the story of this group of people not only like helps you center your players, but also leaves a lot of space for like yeah, like I want to hang out in the market and talk to all of the nobles um, and make the DM come up with names and backstories for like seven NPCs. And like that is just as valid a part of the story. And it, yeah, I, I think that's what I would what I would say. That's my hot take is like when we talk about story, I think we need to talk about the story of the party and the people in the room at the table together as opposed to like the grand story. Mm hmm. I feel like I've been shifting a lot of my ideas about DMing lately and especially on like a session by session basis, because I do want it to feel like something has been achieved. We have we have accomplished something. Um, Things are different now than when they were before we started playing tonight. Uh, And I feel like the thing that I have been trying to art or like trying to use as a guiding principle is to have we do three hour sessions and i i read somewhere a while ago that like you can achievably normally get through one encounter an hour 
And that might be uh, a discussion with a character um, where you're getting information out of them. That might be combat. That might be going shopping. Shopping might take you an hour. Um, and so I try to have like three disparate, like discrete, um, not story beats, but like possibilities of things that they might do. And often they go off the rails and go into different places than I was expecting them to. And I, I try to accommodate that as best I can. Um, but there's something for having like, here's an opportunity um, and not here's a story beat. Like here's an opportunity for y'all to shift or change um, what's going on. And I think you might address it this way or this way, but like the goal is that you will have addressed it by the time that we've like finished this session. And here's another opportunity beat if we get past that one. And here's a third for after that um, is kind of how I've been trying to think of it. And so less delivering story and more presenting opportunity, um, which I think when I started conceiving of DMing that way, um, it really realigned things for me in a way that I've found useful. Yeah. I love that. I feel like it's so hard though, to strike the balance between like kind of knowing like what could be so that you're not just like <laughs> making shit up on the fly. Um, mm. while also like, yeah, leaving, leaving room for, for agency and really letting things be collaborative. Um, one thing I really appreciated about the way that John John structured Irremediably Home was that like it it didn't feel like it didn't feel like a story with a beginning and an end. It felt like like we said, hey, we should wrap up the campaign soon. And he was like, great, I'll find a stopping point. Um, mm -hmm. But you could hop back into that game tomorrow. And same with the paranoia campaign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think those two were definitely like the the D&D &D adventure was like an adventure um, with a kind of beginning, middle and end. Yeah. I think we sort of in the podcast experience, that sort of evolution towards like collaborative, more open-ended, more incremental story building, as opposed to like going through an Aristotelian structured thing. And again, I think that speaks to, to system, um, you know, and how much a system expects you to prep, you know, D D and D, fairly heavily paranoia kind of not at all <laughs> um, uh, ahead of time. And I'll just say for the things that do expect you to prep, if you are interested in um, player agency and so on, you also just have to be willing to throw things out. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, hopefully you can repurpose them later, but like yeah, I, I have planned a chase sequence um, for my upcoming game and that took some time, but also if they find a way to avoid the chase sequence, I just have to honor that and they'll be like, well, I'll save that elaborate chase sequence for mm -hmm. another another time. Uh, see, I built my I built my party two dungeons because I know in theory uh, they would only need to pick one of them, but I know them well enough to know. A, if I were to only prepare one, they would choose to do the other. And B, <laughs> uh, chances are extremely good that like once the big scary fight that they are planning to start is over, they will be like, let's go check out the other place <laughs> to see what's there. So I have the opposite, the opposite problem of like, 
they'll if I mention that something is an option, they'll absolutely go and check mm. it out, um, which I say with the most love in the world. Well, and I also think this is one of those uh, this is one of those things about how we describe like part of the problem of this all being theater of the mind is that by describing anything, you make it important. But if you're even just trying to give like background color to a thing and you're like, there's a window in the room, sometimes there's like, well, I need to investigate the window because it must be important. <laughs> and it's like, no, there's there just happens to be a window because sometimes rooms have windows um, and managing those expectations of like, this is the thing that I want. There was a, a stool that was on its side. That was what I was hoping you'd get into. And instead, we're opening a window a bunch did it yeah. did i tell you all about the customs officer no oh no in in my current game the last time the country what the the country the party went on a journey to like a different country i was trying to like set the scenes i described the city and how you know the architecture and the climate and so on is different from where they came from and then I had the guy who was meeting them meet them at the at the docks and he was like okay now we have to go through customs and I made up this customs officer in what I thought was going to be a like silly bit to ask them like a couple of questions about the like normal customs questions about like, <laughs> who are you and what are you doing in this country? And they were like, the government in this place is out to get us. I was like, no, you're you're just a bunch of foreigners coming into an organized nation state and they want to know who you are. <laughs> That's so, so yeah, it's a good example of that. They spent two sessions convinced that there is some government conspiracy until eventually I was like, you guys, the government literally has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I feel like that even came up in our D&D campaign on the podcast because like Kevin and Renee were like intent on like, we're going to question every single person in this tavern for all of the information that they had. And I'm looking at matt minichino's wonderful module that he wrote which had like two bullet points of information and they spent so long in there and i felt like eventually i had to almost explicitly be like there's n there's nothing else here <laughs> <laughs> like i always want to yes and and i want to like honor what the players are bringing but there has to be like there i definitely reached a point where i was just like i can't i can't be clear enough that like there is no more information to be gained <laughs> please leave Please, please go do something else. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a that's a great <laughs> a great note for us to say. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of Dungeons and Drama Nerds, uh, and stay tuned at the beginning of May for the official announcement of our second season, which will launch on May twenty sixth. We are super excited to bring you a whole bunch of new games. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orbis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. You can find cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and stay tuned for our season announcement for Season 2, coming soon. Music